Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. This month's Partisan Gardens is all about the Farmer's Almanac, specifically the 2021 Earthbound Farmer's Almanac, which we just got our copies of. Our listeners are probably familiar with the old Farmer's Almanac, with its planting charts, weather forecasts, and random tidbits of folksy wisdom and jokes. It's an artifact of an earlier time, probably not the first place our listeners go to decide what to plant or where to plant it. The Earthbound Farmer's Almanac, on the other hand, is situated in the present moment. We'll let it speak for itself. Here's the back cover. Quote, this is a farmer's almanac for the end of the world. Growing food used to be a lot more straightforward when you'd plant your okra at the same time every year like your grandpa did. Now we've got to be ready for anything. Late spring freezes, free heat waves that bring plants out of dormancy too early, fire season longer every year, the polar vortex. And if that wasn't enough, we've also got to contend with the fallout from breakages in the global supply chain when millions of gallons of milk get poured down the drain and mountains of potatoes are left to rot. It's a world that calls for a new kind of farmer's almanac. Today's crisis has roots in the earliest moments of land theft against native peoples, a process that has continued alongside hundreds of years of slavery and colonization. The way forward out of this mess will mean grappling with past wrongs as well as charting a new course guided by black and indigenous knowledge, creating experimentation in food production and paying attention across generational and species divides." So for today's episode, we're taking you on an audio tour of the almanac less like an audiobook and more of an interpretation and an exploration based on the almanac. We'll bake a dessert recipe from the almanac, hear the writers reading their own words, learn about the Louisiana Lumber War, and more. Up first, we have Sarah, reading An October Market in Small Town, New England. It's October, but the sun and the work of heaving crates of vegetables out of our floppy, rusty red truck has my nose and chin humid with sweat beneath my cheap blue mask. I'm worried damp spots and dirt speckle the mask's exterior and farmer's market customers are going to find me unhygienic. But the bright purple kohlrabi, cheddar yellow cauliflower, pearly turnips, and bright pink tomatoes in October, tomatoes in October, the weather's so warm way too late. All those beautiful things draw hungry eyes away from my frizz-lined, soggy face. We are in our small town center, 
in the chipped parking lot in between the old off-track bedding parlor, now empty and thick with mold, and the family dollar. It's only three miles from the farm, the reason the cranky red truck is allowed to come. The last few weeks I've been selling out of everything I bring to this market, and I've been bringing lots. The entire wood-sided pickup truck bed stacked high with heavy crates of potatoes, beets, carrots, cabbage. I think part of it is our town doesn't have a grocery store. Some older customers tell me I'm their only source of vegetables. The gas station and family dollar have everything else. I think partly too, it's that rich second homeowners have moved up here from NYC in droves. And then there's the rapid hunger of the pandemic, the anxiety and desire it's inspired. The market is an outdoors, feel better way to accumulate an insurance against hunger. There's a fear underlying it all. The realization that maybe the system is crumbling and indeed we do need farmland close at hand just in case. There's also a void looming and humans like to fill voids. I think about the unstoppable urge to kick gravel into sewer grates as a child. Sometimes the most easily filled void is our stomachs. An old woman draped in necklaces, a little felt hat falling off her head and a loose mask following like two fabric lemmings fleeing her craggy face visits my stand every week. Once she eyes the turnips and says, when I was a girl in Holland during the war, my family ate only turnips. My mother would send me into the farmer's fields to steal them. She told me, if you get caught, I do not know you. She grimaces, no, I will never eat another turnip. She turns to leave my tent and whispers sadly, may that never happen here. Then a lady in sleek black leggings saunters up. Her eyes are wide and moving rapidly. I'd like 10 bunches of carrots. And uh, do you have anything else good juiced, ginger? I point hopefully at the beets. She wrinkles her nose. Okay, just the carrots, please remove the tops. My dad used to tell us a story about my grandpa, who I never met. He was a foster child during the Great Depression. And once when he was very hungry, an old farmer gave him a bowl of cornflakes with milk fresh from his cows. The relief and sweetness of that milk left such an impression on him that my family still holds cornflakes and milk in reverence. There's a natural abundance that comes from farming. Always there is extra. In the US, over 30% of produce is left to rot in the field. The only difference between my grandpa's time and now is that most farms are much farther from cities and much larger. Large means too much, too far, means needing semis and factories to distribute food instead of a farmer just noticing his hungry neighbor kid. Remember all the stories of millions of pounds of food, including live pigs and chickens that were just buried early on in the pandemic because the farm's institutional buyers had closed? American farmers overproduce, yet the void of hunger and debt never fills. Much later, my friends come and lounge on the tailgate behind me. I talk to them in between customers and send them home with free vegetables. My next door vendor brings me a carrot cupcake she made with our carrots. Her dented green van blasts Paul McCartney and Cat Stevens. An NRA sticker and an Eat Organic one are peeling off the tailgate. I go home later and I feed the crate of carrot tops to our chickens. Next, we have an anonymous contributor reading their piece, Tierra Anonimo. Tell me, or better yet, tell yourself that I might better hear you. How do you legitimize communion? Is it something that we do? Is it something that happens to you? Is it easily categorized and where does it live in your body? I will not be proposing any perfection of methodology here. 
The devastation that is imperialism and the American colonial project has worked tirelessly to physically and psychically divorce BIPOC from traditional practices of union with land, with kin, and consequently ourselves. There have been several ways in which I have begun the undoing of this inherited incarnate hurt. Not first and not last, this isn't orderly work, is reconnecting with the land of which I am ancestrally wrought. The circumstances that led to my first spring on a budding farm are as simple as friends needing a reliable hand. The dynamics complicated by implied power and ownership. It must be said, white landowners, you need to actualize more in terms of decolonization. You need to atone for implicit harm and actively dismantle internalized patriarchal hierarchies that occur within diverse collaborative work. You need to cede land back to BIPOC. Still, the complexities of this relationship persist. I am happy to be learning and growing within a greater collective that includes a diverse population of plants, animals, and organisms. To find myself living and working land in the place where my ancestors have traversed and lived and loved and bled and wept has shaken fruit from my limbs and without a thought, seeds are sown into that heroic history. What I am continuing to grasp from months of reintegration of myself into the Colectivo Ultimo is an unrefined understanding of organic connectivity. I am here to destroy the manufactured borders that separate my humanity and the rest of the natural world. Immutable social ideologies and oppressive governments have burdened and corralled human dynamism. That which situates us within living does the diabolical work to sever us from the syncopated rhythm of the universe. The entire universe is singing a song both for and because of itself. Not unlike a choir that requires many voices and humanity is one of them. There is no calculating where to join in, there is only to start. The how of that beginning is not to be dictated. There is only sharing within it. As a detribalized indigenous person, I am winging it. I don't have a traditional healer. I have to seek guidance in many. My family, friends, the land, and the collection of histories that reside within me. I am creating ceremony, intuiting initiation, and developing an internal ear for the eternal eye. This is something anyone can do and everyone deserves. You need only follow that desire. P.S. You don't need to borrow from any other culture, trust or create your own. Having made contact has led me to ask, how can I be a babe in the woods, provoke my own instinctive wonder and develop that practice as a method of resistance? not against methodology, against an accepted standard of reality that works to secure the boundary between humanity and nature. I want to see what we are raising, be it plants or livestock, for the first time, as often as I can manage, as a practice to enliven the sense of existing that is inhabiting. When seeds germinate, trees shed leaves, fungi grows, 
that is all a part of an ongoing conversation that is constantly happening around us. It is very important we realize this conversation includes us. In fact, it desires our participation. As our climate changes with increasing severity, so we too must mirror that intensity in the pursuit of every avenue that puts humanity back into a participatory role. As our climate changes with increasing severity, so we too must mirror that intensity in the pursuit of every avenue that puts humanity back into a participatory role. My ambition here towards a slow and intimate reintroduction to that which is so precious it should remain unnamed. The beauty of this inhabiting is in its very nature, untamed, boundless, and faceless, but unlike a mystery. As for systems of stewardship leading to a certain level of success, whatever the goal is, of course, there is rhyme, reason, and important calculations to be made. But bear with me here. There was a time before said systems. There was a before time of unknowing. The accumulation of knowledge that has created the basis of land stewardship is the result of ancestral missteps and corrections. We literally had to watch, feel, fall in love, fail, and begin again and again to be here. Moments of apprehension within an experimental practice breed a certain hunger necessary for endurance. There is sustainable joy to be accessed within those moments. We need to learn to love watching paint dry. Dedicate the attention and presence it takes to have a deeply understood grasp on the different factors that affect whatever we are cultivating to the point of intuiting needs. Then beyond intuition, to the point of becoming, wherein the needs of the land are experienced as our own, because they literally are. This is not a suggestion of abandoning valuable collected knowledge. It is an appeal towards the embodiment of euphoria within it. Euphoria as a consequential reality of stewardship. As a particular renewable bliss in belonging to and with the land. This euphoria has all at once mocked, courted and comforted me during this time of rehabilitation. It facilitates wonder and desire beyond the property line and beyond the corporeal. The exhausted efforts of qualifying and quantifying where humanity ends and the environment begins serve as a function of disconnect. It demands our environment represent itself to us, suggesting there is something we need proven to us. I have been asking, what does it look like to actively rewrite that narrative? Can we lean into the expectation that some necessary characteristics of the nature of existence endure only in formlessness and cherish that? Something I keep returning to is how when I try really hard to hear some sound of an unknown source, I end up kind of sabotaging my ability to listen. In my mind, it resembles double Dutch. Maybe it's been years, a decade, a lifetime, generations even, since I've remembered that my body can do such things. Maybe you don't know what double dutch is. I don't mean to argue it's simple to learn or an effortless jump into such a cadence. I will suggest 
The simple joy and exhilaration that is observed when one does, even for a moment, without calculation and with passive observation, find that rhythm, it is worth every attempt that precedes it. It animates the spirit and we may take heart in having the experience. To seek this connectivity with land, animals, comrades, is to seek something outside of colonial banality for me. It is a part of reclaiming a history that was stolen from me and that my family hid from me and first hid from themselves as a method of survival. My survival is rooted in something else. And now we have Christian Keeve with their piece, We Sent Dandelions. We Sent Dandelions. Field notes from some near past. I'm tending a garden between two thickets and an out-of-the-way patch of some tract of conserved nature on land known as Dejope. One of a few sites for a garden-based mutual aid project I was fortunate to help start and manage, focused on black dye support crops and seeds. We are five months into a generational plague, and we somehow don't yet know how bad it will be. We are two months into a flourishing of historic uprisings against state violence and foundational geologic trauma that threads through these lands inside and out. The world is becoming something else that can't quite be seen yet. Tectonic plates are shifting and cracking. And I am growing food and building anxious texts about the weeds and writing a thesis, of all things. But writing is also a form of gardening. The storm never ends, and we're all a part of it. In the delightful mess of a growing space, a number of forces, actors, and materials work together to produce and reproduce the site on an ongoing basis. The work done by humans and the work done by plants function in conjunction with soil microbes, decomposers, pollinators, clay, silt, sand, microaggregates, solar energy, detritus from past seasons and projects, and weed seed banks already in the soil, all working with and against each other to bring the site into being. The emergent properties of life and non-life encountering and colliding. There's a historical resonance with the material things that humans leave behind. Bits of twine, lost trellis clips, broken stakes among the live seed and root mass hanging out in the soil. This could be seed produced by wild plants in previous seasons, the milkweed among the amaranth, as well as that produced by cultivated plants whose seed was lost in small amounts during harvest and processing. The potato is forming an accidental border for the collards. In natural archives, these volunteers come of their own accord as a reminder of what grew in seasons past, in places where they were not intended or wanted. Notes through time to be reckoned with and cared for, making themselves known and laboring in the garden with everyone else. Field notes from some future present. We are tending a garden from a different world that you may think of as after the end of yours, but we don't. We want you to know that this isn't an apocalypse. Some of us headed towards catastrophe and collapse, yes, but some simply changed their minds. We did other things and left certain worlds behind. Call them lateral ruins if you want vestigial, tangential worlds that almost were. This idea of the field is interesting to us. We don't quite get what it is or where it begins. Some of us became the field. Some were relegated to sustenance and production, and theirs was the yield upon which other lives got made. They were the other lives of the grand project and all its most basic components, the leftovers and the ingredients. Now they move through the dirt like water striders. They are humus and topsoil and fungi. We found the seeds you left behind, left on the ground, forgotten in pantries, swept off the seed room floor with dust and debris. 
The storm dropped them off, and we used the chaff and dead skin and bits of bugs and hair as fertilizer. We formed cooperatives of seeds, starts, and harvests. Mutually assured instruction. We let the earth do its work. We found that gardening was also a form of writing. We found that sometimes, when we planted seeds, instead of up and forward, they grew down and back, through time. We wanted to nourish the ancestors and thought this may work just as well. We sent some dandelions. Did you get them? We sent plantain. We hope you can read this. We aren't bitter. We don't seek retribution or response or return from or for this ruined world. We want you to know that we're okay. We don't know how much longer we have, but neither do you. We haven't turned our backs, only our heads, to each other. Hadley, one of the contributors to the Earthbound Farmer's Almanac, spoke with Christian about We Sent Dandelions and about farming's relationship to the past year of uprisings. So in this piece, you mentioned that you started a project focused on Black diasporic crops and seeds. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So this past like spring and summer of 2020, I was um, invited onto a project in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, um, which is the, the name of the sort of site that occupies what um, the Hoshang folks call Dejo, which was oriented towards growing out uh, Black diasporic crops in sort of Southern Wisconsin as um, we kind of like, we kind of envisioned it as sort of an experiment station, quote unquote, experiment station, and trying to see how these varieties would do in Southern Wisconsin, as well as like trying to think through, um, in my own work, trying to think through um, certain forms of like, both like, I guess like bio and cultural adaptation, right? Um, so thinking through the ways in which seeds move and travel, um, as well as kind of the ways in which they allow people to form certain connections to place into the land, but also the ways in which they sort of change and evolve on, on a population level as, as sort of the communities that steward them also are changing and evolving, right? So anyways, this, this project, which is the Trade Roots Culinary Collective, they started with a couple of folks um, who were connected with UW, um, which is where I was doing my master's, which was about like seeds, um, and a large part about like African American seed legacies. And it was originally intended, we wanted to kind of like figure out a way to um, kind of start off uh, these sort of local like community-based seed keeping projects through, through this work. Um, so we were kind of like sourcing from um, various like seed companies that we trusted. The main one being True Love Seeds based out of Philadelphia, um, which has a, an African-American collection that it prioritizes, I guess. But the, the idea was to kind of like build some sort of community buy-in to, to get these seeds saved year after year to see kind of like what becomes of them kind of years down the line, see how they adapt or maybe see how they are bred into new varieties based on like the needs of folks, you know, in their backyard gardens, those community gardens. Um, and then the pandemic hit um, and <laughs> uh, we had to like rethink a lot of things and uh, it ended up being just us growing food um, in the midst of all this. And kind of thinking, kind of thinking through just like the work that we were doing for for these communities, but also for the community, but also just like for the land, and just like thinking critically about what it means to do these sorts of like culturally significant like seed and land work um, on on colonized lands, right? Um, especially with like um, as we had like the backing of like land grant land grab university, right? But also thinking of like the in this particular case, right? So these were these were varieties that were like brought bred and co-opted either it's like right across the middle passage, like varieties from West Africa or varieties are bred by black folks in the Americas, but more specifically, just like 
in the United States, uh, as well as like kind of certain varieties that were like co-opted into like African-American cuisines. So thinking critically about like just the ways in which that legacy was a lot of like me trying to like intellectualize things when I could, and then, but mainly just like, just like us like weeding um, and planting seeds and growing things and also like having other things like pop up in these spaces. So we had like a few different spaces around the city that we were growing in. And the kind of the, the, the main like focus was on these sort of like black guys sport crops, but then we kind of kept thinking of like, well, allowing things to pop up out of the ground that wanted to pop up out of the ground. So like in one of our sites, we had, um, we had tobacco pop up um, as a volunteer, which was amazing, which was a gift, but also things like, you know, milkweed and potatoes. Just thinking about some of the Laurette Savoy's words about thinking about the land and the soil as a palimpsest of just like the ways in which you can kind of like come to the land with these ideas and with these sort of like forms of like, like writing as gardening, right? Like things you want to grow and these things, you know, you're sort of like culturally significant stories that you want to like bring to the sort of like land that you're on as, as well as then kind of seeing the ways in which like kind of the land will will rewrite that for you right like the land already has its own sort of like stories and histories and yeah so you're trying to adapt like these black guys for crops to southern wisconsin and trying to see if we could like kind of like build a sort of like network through like throughout the community to kind of like not only grow these things out but also keep these seeds and it is an ongoing project so a concept that we've been very interested in recently is this idea of emergent design. So mm-hmm. rather than front-loading design choices at the beginning of the process, emergent design takes place over time in response to feedback. It requires the input of multiple designers, including paying attention to the contributions of non-human forces. This mm-hmm. sounds to me very similar to how you describe the growing space as, quote, a number of forces, actors, and materials working together to produce and reproduce the site on an ongoing basis. Uh, So I'm curious how this informs or impacts your gardening practices. Like what does emergent design look like for you in practice? I often joke that I'm a kind of a deeply chaotic gardener. Like I, <laughs> like if you're growing for like, you know, like yield or whatever, <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't be in charge of it. But um, I tend to approach gardening as like me making like various suggestions, if that makes sense. So like, as far as like, as far as the, the seeds that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm starting or the things I'm putting in the ground, right? And, and the ways in which I'm kind of arranging things. And then like the plants themselves and the land and kind of just like the space that you're in, like will have its own ideas, right? Uh, as far as like what it wants to do with that space and how the space will take shape. So it's just like, and I love, and I love the, the use of the word design here because I, I tend to see it as like a, a sort of like relinquishing of like the responsibility of design, if that makes sense. Um, so just, just thinking about um, the ways in which plants will approach like space on their own terms, right? Will also engage in certain like productive and like reproductive practices on on their own terms, but as, as, as a community, if that makes sense. So, so like a lot of my work has been about seeds and seed work, the everyday sort of work of keeping track of and like trying to guide and sometimes manipulate like, like the kind of like reproductive capacities and activities of plants, right? Just kind of a, a very sort of like a queer ecology's take that, <laughs> that I've been like playing around with for the past couple of years. Uh, but just thinking of like the ways in which as a human in these spaces, right? And as like, even like as the, the human as that's like kind of and name them themselves like the human that's distorted of a space, right? How you're you're always working like with and against all the needs and like wants of like all these other types of beings that like may 
not even have like needs or wants that are like fully intelligible to you or interpretable to you so you're kind of like it's a lot of it's a lot of like kind of like you guessing right it's a lot of like a not only sort of you centering of yourself but it's it's a relinquishing of the sort of ideal of a garden or a growing space as a sort of stable image if that makes sense right like it's it's an embrace of the ways in which uh it is literally just like changing on a day-to-day basis on an hour-to-hour basis even and it's changing in ways that like you may or may not like or that you may or may not agree with right it's it's doing all these things that like you may or may not need or want it to do but it's doing them on its own terms for its own reasons right and that is sort of this you could, you could see that like in, in that way it's 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 speaking back to you it's almost like putting you in your place right you can do everything correctly and by the book and you can you know put all this like love and care and like your know, guidance and, like very careful like um, manipulation into, into these growing spaces and then you know what a, a hailstorm could, could swing by and they could just like ruin the, the entire thing right it, it could completely rework the entire space in ways that you may or may not want or agree with right but also like i mean there are there are also like histories to that space right um, both in terms of the seeds left behind, as well as uh, certain human impacts, right? Um, so both in terms of like various plants that will volunteer and pop up. I tend to like embrace volunteers and like, um, you know, if like a milkweed wants to pop up or some potatoes from years previous or like tobacco, like I mentioned from years previous or random like tomatoes want to like kind of like spring forth from the ground as like little reminders and like little notes from the past of like what people growing and what they kind of like were hoping for and wanting right but also just thinking like deeper of the ways in which like not only decentering yourself as like the human in that space but also decentering yourself as like just one human and part of a much larger human history if that makes sense right so thinking about like who was on that land before you and whose land it really is there are certain forms of like let's say like human and environmental systemic violence right that informs both what was growing on that land that informs how you like you as a person came to that land in whatever way you did, right? But that also informs like what, what's gonna grow and how it's gonna grow up there and what it's gonna be up against and what you're gonna be up against. So there's that, there's all of that. Um, and there's also <laughs> just thinking about like, just like other other people, not even thinking about just like, I mean, there's also obviously examples of like community gardens, right? In which like a bunch of people kind of have to like store the space collectively have to find a way to do that. But also thinking of like the other sorts of human impacts that will inform or disrupt or contribute to the ways in which you're growing things um, and the ways in which you're like maybe trying to design things. People have also referred to the type of gardening I do as, as chaos gardening. Um, <laughs> so this piece was written at a particular time during the uprising last year when it seemed maybe like anything was possible. You wrote about, quote, the world becoming something else that can't quite be seen yet. Tectonic mm-hmm. plates are shifting and cracking, end quote. I think a lot of us are dealing with living in the aftermath of all that and having to remind ourselves that it wasn't just all a dream. So my question is, do you feel that the ground has shifted? And if so, how would you describe that shift a year later, Uh, especially as someone who's engaged in long-term projects of growing food? uh, How does it change the way you think of the work you're doing? It's a really heavy question. The sort of like geologic imaginary that I was kind of like bringing up in that text was inspired by by Catherine Yusuf's work. Uh, Catherine Yusuf is an inhuman geographer who published this book, um, Building Back Anthropocenes, in which um, she's putting on a lot of 
black feminist thought and like diasporic thought and like Caribbean scholarship uh, to think through these like very deep connections between um, these discourses around the materiality of the earth um, and the materiality of race and the ways in which the, the very concept of like extraction um, and certain forms of like systemic violence against both geologic bodies as well as like humans and groups of humans, um, right? Even the very idea that you could like, you know, extract entire like populations, right? And move them around the world, like and form entire like logistical networks, right? And kind of being tied also back to like the foundations of the geosciences, but um, an extraction and like ideas around like, you know, resources. So I was thinking about that uh, and I was thinking about the kind of like the sort of like deep history of what was being I don't want to say unearthed last summer, but was being reckoned with. I do think the ground has shifted. I also think the earth is deep. It's such a long project that I almost like don't feel like it's necessarily possible to like to see a goal or to identify a goal, if that makes sense. And also I'm very much like, just like not the one that's but in my own <laughs> work. Um, but but I will say that like, like I'm not sure what what happens next because I, I remember like the kind of the, the energy and kind of like a lot of the anxiety of last summer um kind of like just thinking of like everyone's just thinking of like okay well what's my place in this um and what can I do with this and for me I was like well I I can grow food um and I can save seed and I can <laughs> like do certain forms of like educational work about food and seeds and their importance and hopefully that does some good for the world and hopefully that also speaks to these like very deep like tectonic histories and these deep like geologic histories and thinking through these sort of like deeply intertwined forms of systemic violence through settler colonialism and through like plantation slavery and its afterlives to all the Americas. And I, I think in my own work, I'm like, this is always what feels to me a very small thing. Because um, I mean, because seeds are very small things. It always feels to me like, like a very small thing, but like maybe a useful thing to someone, right? Maybe a good thing. You don't like individually need to like have the way to change the world it's, it's hubris right like you don't like need wow. to change the world you know it's it's all you need to do is all you should do is like change someone's world and like maybe that someone is you but i keep thinking of like the ways in which the work that we do is still important even if we don't necessarily have the immediate vision of exactly how of how it ends up or what it does in the world I mean, a lot of what I do is like I grow food or I do work with other folks who are growing food and I like save seeds and I will like talk about seeds and food with other people. And I hopefully that that does something. Hopefully that like resonates in some way that I have absolutely no idea, right, what happens with that in the future. But hopefully it does some sort of work in the world, contribute in a generative way to the work that other folks are doing. Can you just share with us something interesting or beautiful that you've encountered in your gardens recently? So this season, um, my friend and I were like, what if we started like a decentralized seed and plant nursery idea um, here, here in Lex? In a very material sense, um, we were like, okay, so what if we just started a bunch of seeds um, and just like distributed them in whatever we could? And I've had just like a bunch of like starts sitting in front of my apartment I was talking about this, this idea with a, with a friend, another friend of mine, um, and he was like, hey, you should post in this like mutual aid group on Facebook about this like project you're doing. And I was like, I'm on Facebook. I, de I deactivated it. Anyways, and he was like, I'll do it. And then this, this like just this week, I've been getting these like messages from people um, just asking about these starts. And I was like doing some just like home deliveries of like uh, of starts to people. And I was dropping off some like 
tomatoes and peppers and Tulsi to this like person who had messaged me that I've never met. I just like kind of dropped them off on their porch and I drove off and I left with them just a packet of Tulsi seeds and they kind of like responded just like by email. They had this like really like sweet response of just how, how they like loved Tulsi their entire life. And there's like, thank you so much for your starts, but also for the seeds. And that was for me, this really miraculous moment of a decentralized garden, let's say, that really hit me on a deep level. In the monthly sections of the Almanac, the authors add a little bit of history. They offer up the Louisiana Lumber War. It began, they write, with the organizing of the Southern District of the Forest and Lumber Workers Industrial Union. Lasting until 1913, the Louisiana Lumber War was notable for events like integrating local unions during Jim Crow and the Maryville Commune. In our next segment, Hadley speaks with Keegan about the Louisiana Lumber War and its impact. Here they are. My name is Keegan Lejeune. I work at McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I'm the head of the English department. So your book, Always for the Underdog, Leather Breeches, Smith, and the Grabau War, is about a poorly remembered but important labor struggle and the people who participated. Maybe your title gives us some indication, but what about this period drew your interest initially? Well, I guess when I would go to talk to people in that region, what story they often told me was the story of this outlaw named Leatherbridge Smith. You know, he was buried in a nearby cemetery and people would direct me to the grave and they would ask me if I knew the story of Leatherbridge Smith. So I guess my interest started in hearing stories about this sort of legendary figure. But when I heard more and more stories about him, I realized um, that he functioned in a very special way for these people. That not only did he have a reputation for being great with a gun or um, this incredible woodsman, he also had a reputation, depending on who you talk to, as being a really rough, mean person or as a person who didn't take any uh, gruff from people. And when I began to talk to people more and more, I realized that what he did really was represent this very specific moment in history or this town and this place uh, that defined them. And this was this, this timber boom that swept through the region, but in particular, this fight between the labor and ownership of these mills that really came to a head uh, at uh, this one shootout. And I guess in some ways that was what made me really think about this one place um, that the locals called uh, Graybo, this little town, uh, this little tiny mill town that had a, a lumber mill there called the Galloway Mill. Uh, when they began to talk about the fight that happened there, you know, some of it, some people called it uh, the Graybo riot and some people called it the Graybo massacre. And what I began to realize was that this place and this figure was a kind of a, a perfect representation of how this town itself was split over this one moment in history that they were still really trying to find a way to heal from and uh, sort of move, move past. So what were the conditions that pushed these workers to take action in the first place? What was life like in one of these mill towns at that time? That's a good question. You know, I think, of course, it varied from place to place. And one of the things that made a big difference was whether a town was closed or not, a closed company town. 
a closed company town um, was a town that was dominated by a mill and the, the mill ownership. You know, it was basically every aspect of life was really controlled by the mill owners. Everything from the doctors to the opera house or the, the entertainment in town, the, the farmers that came to trade in the town, uh, all the money in town was controlled by the mill owners. So in a closed company town, life was really limited or controlled or directed by what the, the mill owners had. But the mill themselves, you know, um, the work was really of, of two types. So most of the men uh, were either wood crews, people who would go out onto the woods and cut down the, the trees themselves, or the mill workers. You know, life at a mill could be, you know, some of the conditions are, are ones you might think of are, are really tangible aspects of, you know, the pay, for instance. The pay, most people, when I talk to them, locals would remember men being paid, you know, a dollar a day, three dollars a day and working 15 hour days. You know, uh, early on, when when people began striking or, or trying to change uh, the working conditions, you know, what they were shooting for was a 10 hour day. And that's what one of the earliest strikes were about. That gives you an indication of the kind of working they were doing before that. Not only that, a lot of these men were paid in what they called company script, fake money. Uh, they called them bat wings or cherry balls. Um, basically, this was a company money printed on paper that you had to use in the company town. Well, of course, that meant the company could uh, inflate prices or decide how much things are worth. But mainly, it meant people were kind of imprisoned in a way or sort of latched on to the mill, right? You would run up credit and have to pay off these things. So those were some of the conditions. Uh, uh, people, the living conditions, people would complain of like being forced into these lumber camps where men were crowded together. That's what a lot of the locals would tell me. Um, one woman told me that, you know, you could stick your hand through holes in the wall. That's how they were constructed. But the other issue, I think, that was um, less tangible ideas was the, the type of work. You, know, you have to understand that some of these men were transitioning from a way of life where the, the seasons or at least the, the time of day would direct how much work they would do and the type of work. And that all changed with the mill. You know, with these mills, you suddenly, you know, didn't get to choose a job or your work didn't change day in, day out based on the seasons. You were doing the same thing for 10, 12 hour, 14 hour stints, and you were directed by a, a foreman or a boss that told you what to do. So I think there was a, a various things uh, about the mill work that was hard on people, everything from the town themselves to um, the way they were paid, the, the way it changed their interactions with work itself and the value of work. Very few people today know about what happened in Graybow on July 7th, 1912, but at the time it quickly became national news and in its aftermath, people around the country organized fundraisers to support the striking workers who had been attacked and then prosecuted for defending themselves. Can you talk a little bit about what happened that day and its significance to the larger movement at the time? Well, you know, up until that point, both sides were trying to rally support, you know, that there were the Brotherhood of Timber Workers, which was the union that the men formed here, were marching from mill to mill, giving speeches, trying to rally support. Likewise, the mill owners uh, formed the Southern Lumber Operators Association, and they were doing their best uh, to quell the union. 
they were having barbecues or sort of speeches to. So there was a, a lot of uh, growing tension in the area, uh, various demonstrations and speeches. Uh, in fact, on that day, uh, the men had planned to march and give a speech at another town, a little mill called Carson, this mill in Carson, Louisiana. But the reception there was so bad, they decided they would march on to uh, the mill in Grabo, the Galloway mill. When they got there, the men started, uh, the union men started uh, speaking and protesting. And then the, the mill workers began to holler back and talk back. And um, that that shouting evidently escalated into a, a shootout. No one really knows who fired first. In fact, that was one of the main issues when the trial came about, which side fired the first shot. Um, of course, the men working in the mill blamed the, the union men and the union men blamed blamed the men working in the mill and a lot of the armed guards that the mill owners had hired, the Pinkerton men. What that spark of violence did was suddenly change these speeches into a real sense of danger and dread for people, for the locals, and ramped up the sort of uh, fear that people had. So eventually what came to pass was sheriffs and a string of deputies arrested more than 60 men who had participated in that uh, violent escalation at Grabo and brought them to jail for a trial. Just to get the numbers clear, my understanding is that uh, three people uh, were killed in the shootout and something like 50 were wounded. I think that's kind of what the official report says. Of course, I mean, um, local, local people seem to think that, that those numbers are quite low but that's what the papers reported. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you have to understand that the, the people here were split. You know, people who had family members or relatives that worked uh, or joined the union, you know, had a very different d- description of what happened that day than the people who had relatives or sort of ancestors who worked at these mills. You know, the Graybone Mill in particular, the Galloway Mill, it was a very small mill a local mill. And so people were surprised that that was the mill that um, saw this violent escalation. I mean, it was much, some of the much larger mills people had more grievances about. But yeah, I mean, that's what the paper said. Um, And then I think actually one man died later, a fourth man died later at sanitarium. But they arrested 63 union men that day. And I think um, if I'm remembering correctly, the six mill workers were released a couple of days later, but all the union men stayed in jail from that day until the, the end of the trial. Actually, I say 63 men, 62 men were eventually uh, arrested. Only one man was never arrested of the 63 men who were indicted. The men sat in jail. Actually, the jail was so crowded, they moved them to the basement of the local courthouse. But they sat in there from July until November. It took a long summer recess. And that's really what I think ended up breaking the local BTW was their sort of struggle to support all these men in jail for those many months. Yeah, absolutely. So oftentimes when we're talking about the history of labor struggles, we focus on the violent confrontations and the big personalities. One aspect that can get left out is the role of care work and what we might describe today as mutual aid or structures of community care. 
all the different ways that striking workers and their families supported each other and were able to survive while on strike. Uh, in the case of the Maryville strike, or what I've seen referred to as the Maryville Commune, striking workers in Maryville, Louisiana, had a communal headquarters and soup kitchen, which was eventually attacked and destroyed by agents of the mill owners, leading in part to the end of that strike. Can you tell us a bit more about this episode or any other descriptions of how striking workers during this period organized to meet their needs collectively? Well, I think one of my favorite examples is um, the the way that they that people rallied around each other and tried to feed the men in the jail. I mean, there's a very famous picture, one of the men being brought a meal by De Ritter's um, uh, Ladies Auxiliary one day where they're being served food there. Um, but I mean, I think you make a good point. There was a, a great deal of local support for these people sort of an elaborate system that helped these people uh, survive. I mean, of course, my fascination, as I said, is, a, is about this one figure in a lot of ways. That's where I started, um, just because I, I, I love the stories that people tell and these sort of types of stories. But um, that was one of the things that people often said about, that's what, what, that's what came across often when people would talk about these stories was, um, it was often so much about how locals supported each other or helped even this one pe- person, this one, this sort of legendary outlaw. Well, the more stories you hear about him, the more you realize it's the locals who are helping him stay alive, you know, hiding him out, feeding him, keeping the law away from him, you know. It's a, it's a strong part of their history. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, they're doing, you know, like all things, it's uh, a lot of times history people shy away from it because it's not like we want to picture it. You know, it's complicated, but um, I'm proud of Maryville for remembering this sort of specific time that can be difficult for people. The next segment has an anonymous Acadian talking about their recipe contribution. And then we try the recipe out ourselves. Gatou de fig. Uh, also known as fig cake. This is an old-fashioned Cajun syrup cake recipe featuring fresh figs and pecans from the tree. It's inspired by climbing, picking, cracking, and harvesting in southern Louisiana for my pawpaw, uh, who's my great-grandpa, to create in the kitchen. Uh, it works for preserves year-round. The ingredients are as follows. Two and three quarters cup all-purpose flour, third cup light brown sugar, one and a half teaspoons baking soda, one teaspoon cinnamon, one teaspoon nutmeg, one teaspoon allspice, one pinch of salt, one cup of Steen's cane syrup, three quarter cup buttermilk, half cup of vegetable oil, one teaspoon of vanilla, two large eggs, two cups of fresh figs in syrup drained, or very ripe if you just picked them, and mashed, one cup of chopped pecans, and to make a nice pretty topping, uh, you could put fig preserves, powdered sugar, or vanilla ice cream. To make the fig cake, you first preheat the oven to 350 Fahrenheit. You grease your butt or tube pan well with butter and a light coat of flour. In a mixing bowl, 
combine and thoroughly mix dry ingredients, except for the pecans, blend in vegetable oil and cane syrup. In another mixing bowl, whisk eggs. Add to the mixture and beat until blended. Add buttermilk and vanilla to mixture and beat until smooth. Fold in figs, then pecans, mixing by hand. Pour mix into pan and bake for 55 to 60 minutes. After baking, let it cool completely in the pan. Flip onto the cake pan or plate and coat with the topping of your choice. Also delicious as is. The fig trees were actually behind my grandparents' house and my great-grandparents lived right down the lane from them. So my great-grandpa built my grandparents' house and that's where my um, mom and her family grew up. Um, so they have some really huge fig and camellia and pecan trees there. My great-grandpa was definitely not helping me climb into the trees to get any, to harvest any of that stuff. They were older, so they kind of sent us out to climb and harvest all the figs and anything extra we would get to have is like frozen figs. So that's kind of like our popsicles. And then they would use a lot of the ripe figs to make the cakes. And then they would also get us to harvest pecans and crack them with our feet in the driveway. Yeah, so that's where the pecans would come from. The steam syrup is actually an adaptation to the recipe, pretty much just to honor all the different things that we harvest in Louisiana. Uh, so cane sugar is 45% of U.S. sugar production. Sugar beets, which are up in the Midwest, are 55, so they are. We're actually like slightly below the primary um, producers of sugar, but I wanted to like include that to sort of add my own twist to the recipe a little bit. But yeah, most of the time my great-grandpa would make the fig cake and send us home. It, it's not like a beauty queen kind of cake, you know? It's it's just like in a pan and then like you can kind of give it a nice glaze, but I would usually eat almost the entire cake in the car uh, on the way back. I was very obsessed with it. And so I spent many years trying to get the recipe. I guess a little bit about my great-grandpa. I believe that he got that land uh, in Sunset, Louisiana, which is north of Lafayette, near Opelousas. I think he got it after he served in World War II, and so they were giving people pieces of land um, after their service. And so, yeah, that's how they ended up over there. But most of my family there were Cajun French speakers, um, growing up until they, I guess, had to do like immersion schools or the schools that they were going to. They weren't allowed to speak French anymore. They had to speak English. And so I learned a lot of Cajun French when I would come and visit. A lot of it was hard learning. I would get yelled at if I didn't know what they were talking about. So I learned really, really quick. But uh, yeah, my great-grandpa was really strict, but also very sweet. Um, he was a very good cook and he would watch you. He would watch what you would serve yourself, but he would serve you his gumbo and he would like watch like what pieces you took from the cake and things like that. I'm Nico. I tried this recipe. It was pretty easy and fun. We ended up substituting dark corn syrup for Steen's cane syrup 
and the almonds for pecans, which as far as I can tell, worked out perfectly fine. And so now we're about to try it. It tastes like kind of similar to carrot cake, in my opinion. It's fruity, the allspice reminds me of carrot cake. I kind of like the crunchiness of the fig seeds. Yeah, me too. I think the recipe is correct. I think that something like uh, vanilla ice cream would be really good with it. Yeah, it's not dry, but I think it would benefit from something like that. Yeah, it's really good. Pretty good. I think it's got a great texture and it's not like super sweet. A lot of the flavor, a lot of the sweetness comes from the figs itself. And I really appreciate that. Other than, yeah, it's the kind of thing that I enjoy eating, but I don't feel bad for eating. And I like that in a, in a baked good, so this is great. Texture is nice. And it was, a, it was a pretty simple recipe to make, right? Yeah, it was really easy, and it didn't take a lot of time. Thank you to all the contributors who read their pieces from the Almanac for us. And a special thanks to Hadley for speaking with them. We'll have a PDF of the entire almanac on our website, partisangardens.org, and we'll also include a link to how you can get a hard copy of the book. They made a mixtape to go with the almanac, which you can find at tinyurl.com forward slash earthbound mixtape. Also in the almanac, you can learn about foraging wild mushrooms, read your 2021 horoscope, learn about access to good food in prison, and so much more. Thanks again to all who contributed to the project. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.